Hello and welcome everybody to this, our first podcast of Reasons to Believe Africa, probing sound science and testable truth. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome my friend and colleague of many, many years, Professor David Block. Many of you will know he is the Emeritus Professor of Applied Mathematics. He's an astronomer and more recently appointed as the director for Reasons to Believe Africa. David, thank you for joining us on this first podcast. Thank you so much, Andy. It's a greatest of joys to be here with you and with my dearest friend, Professor Fazio. Well, David, won't you go ahead and just introduce Professor Fazio and then we'll get right into it. Certainly. Giovanni Fazio is one of the greatest legends, I would say, in the domain of infrared astronomy. He served as principal investigator for the first infrared astronomical telescope to fly on the Space Lab 2 flight of the Space Shuttle. That was way back, Andy, in 1985. But our collaboration really started years later because in 1984, Giovanni Fazio was elected principal investigator of the infrared array camera known as IREC, which was on board the Spitzer Space Telescope, one of NASA's great observatories. The Spitzer Space Telescope was launched in 2003, as I recall. But what's extremely interesting about Professor Fazio are his awards. Just to name but two of them, Andy, the Royal Society of London Coast Bar Massey Award, the Gold Medal, which was awarded in 2008. And then, perhaps even more prestigious or equally prestigious, was the Henry Norris Russell Lectureship in 2015, which is awarded to the best of the best. His current research interests include galaxies, star formation, black holes, uh, ultra-luminous galaxies, brown dwarfs, and so on. But this is the legend we have in front of us and my dearest friend and collaborator. And it's just awesome to have him here, Andy. Thank you so much, uh, David. So, Professor Fazio, I want to take you back to the very early uh, 1960s when you joined what was then the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory uh, and the Harvard College Observatory. Just tell us a little bit about that research and some of the conditions under which you worked uh, back in those formative years, if you would, please, Professor. Okay. Uh, thanks, and, uh, Andy. And uh... Thanks very much, David, for your very generous introduction. It was very kind of you. Um, yeah, when I I wasn't trained as an astronomer, and in fact, I've never had an astronomy course in my life. Um, I was trained as an elementary particle physicist, and uh, when I went to my first position as um, uh, at the University of Ro Rochester on the faculty there, we read an article uh, by. Um, a very famous uh, professor, uh, Philip Morrison at Cornell University, that a, that uh, what appeared to be uh, uh, two galaxies in collision. It was, it was a strong source of radio called Cygnus A. And um, these two, uh, this the image of Cygnus A looked like two colliding galaxies together. So Philip Morrison, um, 
suggested that this could be a matter-antimatter galaxies in collision, and as were they were producing copious uh, gamma rays, yeah. and um, um, and so, uh, being an elementary particle physicist with instrumentation, we said, "Ah, uh, we can uh, we can collect we can detect those gamma rays very easily." Uh, so we we dropped my elementary particle physics and went after this unusual source in the sky. Well, it was a long story after that. <laughs> so what we had to do is because gamma rays were absorbed by the atmosphere. We had to build a gamma ray detector, which we knew how to do, but then we had to fly it in a high altitude balloon oh. um, because the gamma rays were absorbed by the atmosphere. Uh, so we did that right away. This was in 1959. And oh. um, it, it was, um, uh, we we uh, flew them and we flew them and we flew them and we flew them and we found nothing. And every time I'd go up, I'd set a no, new lower limit and this went on for 10 years, actually, and uh, kept setting, but we never detected, never detected. It turned out it wasn't a uh, two galaxies in collision, but just an elliptical galaxy with a dust dust band across it. Mm. So, um, so, that, that, so that made me, I went, that changed me from elementary particle physics to astronomy. I was hooked then uh, on doing this, even though uh, doing gamma ray astronomy at that time was extremely difficult. But I did um, get to put a, a gamma ray detector on the on NASA's orbiting solar observatory to look for gamma rays from the sun, mm. um, which we, which we did, and that was launched in 1962. So I've I've been flying uh, space missions for almost over you know doing either high altitude balloon flights or um, um, our uh, our uh, space missions uh, for for sixty five years now, and uh, enjoy, enjoy enjoying it very much. I'm still at it now. Uh, um, I I just turned uh, ninety this year, but still going uh, and uh, working full time. But anyway, uh, after that year, uh, I then decided to branch out into um, ultra high energy gamma ray astronomy. Um, where uh, there you, you um, the uh, ultra high energy gamma ray astronomy can be done from the ground because the gamma rays are so energetic they interact in the atmosphere causing a, what is called a particle shower, and this can be detected on the ground. So again, and I built a ten meter reflector, optical reflector out in in Mount Hopkins, Arizona, just south of Tucson to uh, look for the gamma rays there. And and so we, we looked and um, um, uh, and, and we at the Crab Nebula, a supernova that uh, had occurred. And um, we looked for three years and got a three sigma effect. Uh, mm -hmm. So, um, um, uh, you know, and so, so after one year of tracing high altitude, Low energy gamma rays, and then another five years or so trying to trace um, uh, ultra high energies. And then I, I said, This has got to stop. I said, The amount of work divided by the number of photons I was detecting approached infinity. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, This has got to, so it got to change. And um, 
So I, since I knew how to fly balloons, I decided to go into uh, infrared astronomy. Uh, this was about 1970 or so. Um, I, I did this, and um, um, and uh, that that turned uh, something I never regret, and it turned out to be very very promising. So what I did is I built a um, one meter uh, balloon borne telescope for far infrared astronomy. Mm. And uh, Professor Frank Lowe was sort of the father of infrared astronomy, helped me with the mirror and the detectors and everything. And jointly, we got that going. And um, uh, that really turned out to be incredibly productive. Uh, mm. We uh, mapped for the first time in the far infrared many uh, H2 regions in our galaxy. These are star forming regions. In, uh, ionized storm-forming regions in our galaxy, mapped them for the first time in far infrared wavelengths and uh, produced, uh, uh, that went on for 20 years, that that flight. And I think I flew about 19 flights with it <clears> and just it was uh, extremely productive. And so it led into my introduction into infrared astronomy. And many of the graduate students who have worked on that, um, uh, for example, uh, Ned Wright, who, Later on, flew his own uh, infrared telescope mission for, for NASA. And also George Rieke, who worked on Spitzer with me and also uh, is now one of the builders of the MIRI instrument on, on the James Webb telescope. So a lot of interesting graduate students, uh, mm. very productive there. Two, yes. two, so, yeah, some uh, of the best in the world, Giovanni. Yeah, yeah. So I'm very, I'm very proud of that. Also, I must say, as much as my scientific achievement. Yeah. But anyway, that led to my, as David announced, um, led to my uh, flight of, a, of an infrared telescope on the space shuttle. And uh, the object there was to send something up. It was the, the whole Space Lab Two flight was devoted to science. I think there were eleven or twelve experiments: X-ray, cosmic ray, plasma physics. And but it, what it turned out to be that the space shuttle is really like a little comet. Uh, water gets absorbed in the tiles, and um, is then emitted when it gets into space. So the, there's a cloud of water vapor around the um, uh, around the shuttle, and that's a death knell for infrared astronomy because uh, water vapor absorbs infrared radiation. And also, we saw paint flecks and bolts and nuts and coming out out of the shuttle, drifting by the telescope. And um, so th that was the uh, the end of that. And well, it really showed that uh, NASA wanted to do infrared astronomy from the shuttle, but it proved that that was not feasible. X-ray mm -hmm. astronomy can be done, and, and cosmic ray work can be done, but not infrared astronomy. Mm -hmm. So then NASA decided to instead um, launch an um, infrared telescope at the time, it was called the uh, Space Infrared Telescope. First into a, um, oh, first, uh, into a high orbit, 10,000 kilometer uh, uh, orbit, and, and then they decided to uh, uh, then launch the, uh, the Spitzer. Well, at the time, it was called the Space Infrared Telescope Facility, and um, that was um, uh, eventually. Uh, 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 proposed in the um, 
in the uh, oh, actually it was the late 70s and early 80s, and then the call for for uh, investigators went out in uh, 1983, and I applied as David said in '84, um, with the infrared array camera and won that, and and that mission was launched as David said in 2003. It lasted 16 and a half years. It was only built for five years, and um, um, and just, I mean, Spitzer changed our view of the universe. There's just no, um, no question. And the infrared ray camera was, was still working at the end. And we eventually NASA just turned it off because um, Webb's was coming along and it was getting more difficult to, to communicate with it because it was in a solar orbit uh, following the Earth. And so... Uh, Turn it off. I tried to keep it going by getting private donations, but was not successful in trying to uh, to do that. Um, Professor Fazio, just enlighten us on specifically the penetrating power of of infrared astronomy. So, for people who may not be aware of uh, that particular technology, what uh, is it that makes infrared astronomy uh, so special, in your view? Yeah, that's that's a very good question. Um, uh, let me say the infrared radiation is the radiation just beyond the red part in the electromagnetic spectrum. It's radiation we cannot see with our eyes. Yes. And um, so most of the spectrum, not all of it, but most of the spectrum is absorbed by the atmosphere, and we have to go up above the atmosphere to see it. But the question, the question is, you're right, why is it so important? Well, there's several reasons. One is you can see galaxies at very great distances. The universe is expanding, and as a result of that, uh, galaxies, uh, the further a galaxy away it is, the faster it's moving and uh, away from us. And due to the expansion of the universe, the light, uh, the white light from a galaxy is stretched uh, uh, due to the expansion, it ends up in the infrared. Mm. So if you wanna see galaxies at the beginning of the universe, you have to go into the infrared, mm. and uh, so that, that's one reason. The second reason is that infrared radiation can penetrate dust. Mm. As David know, well knows, and is one of the experts on this, uh, but that's one of his advantages. Optical light can't get out. So if you want to see stars born in their very dense clouds mm. of gas and dust, you have to go to the infrared. And the infrared... The dust also emits in the infrared. That's um, another reason. And um, so many things in the universe are blocked by dust. We can't see the Hubble can't see them. But uh, uh, Spitzer and now JWST, James Webb Space Telescope, can, can, can see it. And then the, the last reason is that many molecules vibrate uh, in the... Um, and infrared wavelengths, particularly um, uh, infrared molecules that would be critical to discovering life elsewhere in the universe. Mm. For example, like carbon dioxide, water, ozone, uh, methane. And, and so if you want to look for life in the universe, the best place to do it is in the infrared. Mm. So those, those are the primary reasons why it's so exciting. Thanks, Professor. I, I know that you have a reputation as the father of, of the IRAC, the infrared 
array camera. But closer to our conversation today, you've also worked with Professor David Block on the history of the Andromeda galaxy. Yeah. Um, would, would, I'd love to just see the two of you reminisce on some of that, particularly leading up to the publication of, of the journal article in Nature. So, David, maybe you start and then we'll go back to Professor Fazio. Well, it was one of my greatest joys. It's always been one of my greatest joys, Andy, to collaborate with um, Giovanni Fazio, simply because he's a He's, a, he's like Professor Chris Barnard was in heart surgery with the heart transplants. You know, his knowledge is encyclopedic, as you can hear. He's mentally so astute. And so uh, years ago, I said to Giovanni, with my great interest in cosmic dust, I said to him, you know, I wonder what the Andromeda spiral galaxy, which is 2.2 million light years away from us, I wonder what that would look like in infrared light. It was just a kind of a hunch I had. What does it actually look like? What can we expect to see? Will we expect to see a normal spiral galaxy or will there be untold lurking mysteries suddenly unfolding before our eyes? And so I approached um, uh, Profazio and I said to him, Giovanni, I have this little nudge. Um, can you help me? I'd love to have the Andromeda galaxy observed by the Spitzer Space Telescope and IRAP, but in the infrared. And Giovanni, as always, as always, I've stayed in his home many, many times near Harvard, as always, was just so generous with his time and expertise. And uh, he sent uh, my team and myself, he was part of the team, of course, one of the images uh, of the Andromeda Spiral Galaxy. And my jaws nearly fell wide open because I saw something which basically, uh, Giovanni, correct me if I'm wrong, but we hadn't been detected before, and that is that there was almost a head-on collision. Giovanni was speaking about colliding galaxies. There's almost a head-on collision, not 13 billion years away, but right on our doorstep. I mean, this was almost unimaginable, a collision right here on our doorstep. Uh, two, two million light years away, not billions of light years away. And I saw these glowing rings of fire. Uh, as Giovanni says, the dust starts glowing uh, in the infrared. And I could see that the interloper, the interloper, the, the galaxy which had caused this almost head-on collision was a small little galaxy called Messier 32, which had rammed into Messier 31. And so the whole history unfolded and the result was published in Nature. And in fact, uh, we flew Giovanni Fazio uh, to Johannesburg and he was at the international uh, press conference, which was hosted by SARPA, Reuters. And this was announced worldwide, the discovery. But right behind this discovery at every single step, uh, was uh, my dearest collaborator and dearest friend, uh, Giovanni. So he might like to also add to some of the excitement in those days. Okay, yeah, that was that was really uh, quite something. David led this effort, and uh, I thank him for getting me involved with it and everything. But it is also one of my uh, outstanding results from uh, the infrared array camera. I never remember. I also, I'll never forget going to work that morning uh, in Johannesburg to see David 
And uh, along the way, I, I see the paper, newspapers being posted, and there above the fold was, you know, um, um, uh, astro you know, an astronomer finds uh, collision, galaxy collision, or something like that. I forget what the exact words were, but, but uh, anyway, that, that was quite something for me. Yeah, so I remember it said, which prof solves galaxy puzzles or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it was so yeah. funny. I mean, there you were, we were driving in the car, and you saw this, uh, as you say, above the fold and on the street poles. I was very thrilled about that, Giovanni, because it's not often that astronomical research is featured in the same uh, level of interest as, say, President A meeting King B or so on. Yeah, I, we, and then we gave um, uh, a fantastic uh, talk at, at, the, at the auditorium in, with Waterfriend uh, University, the uh, which was really fun. Uh, I, I recall also, David. That that was a yes. great. Yeah, David and I both shared the the stage there, and that was yes. that was a lot of fun. I really worked. I loved working with David. He's uh, always excited and got me more involved in galaxies, and I'm very appreciative of that. And that's one of the things, Professor Fazio, that I wanted to, one of the things I wanted to ask you was, uh, Professor Block brought out the book um, that was co-authored co with uh, Professor Ken Freeman, um, God and Galileo. And Professor Fazio, you, you endorsed that book. So that leads me to my next question of your understanding of, of the hand of God in all of this in terms of creation. Mm -hmm. where, where do you stand on all of that? Yeah, no, I do. You know, uh, most of the people I work with are either agnostic or atheist, and that seems to prevail through through the upper echelons uh, of, of science. And um, I myself, I consider myself a very religious person. I'm a Roman Catholic, practicing Roman Catholic, and I, I find no no conflict with religion uh -huh. and um, and science. Uh, and, and in fact. Uh, when I give a talk on the origin of the universe and everything, I always put it, you know, make the comment at the end and that uh, several things. First of all, when you look at the universe and you, you you see where we are in it and our position, and the first reaction is, um, wow, we are nothing. We, we are just a little pinpoint, a dot, nothing, you know, a dust grain in the universe. But then I say, looky, with a few kilograms of gray matter above in our head, we were able to contemplate what the universe looked like. And this is a miraculous thing. This is an amazing thing. We don't fully appreciate that. And, and again, you know, that's, I, I look upon that as, as being a gift of God that we're able to do that. And, um, and the second thing, when you look at the universe, although it appears randomly, there's incredible order in it and uniformity and beauty. And that, again, I find just doesn't appear randomly. Mm. I remember when I was in my Catholic grade school or elementary school, as you would call it, and the nuns would give us the example, you know, of you walking along the beach and all of a sudden you find a watch in the sand. You pick up the watch, you look at it, you open it up, 
and you see this incredible mechanism on the inside, mm. and you say to yourself, wow, some intelligent being must have assembled this. This didn't randomly appear in the sand. And so I, that's another example I still remember from elementary school that uh, I, I, when I look at the universe, I see the hand of God in it. Uh, I mean, I don't see how anybody cannot, but um, most people don't, I'm afraid. So enlighten us us on that. Uh, How do you understand this notion of the hand of God in creation? Well, I said, we, although we claim we know an awful lot about how the universe formed and everything, you know, there's there's beginning to be some cracks opening up that question whether we really do or not. Uh, But there's things like, where did the universe come from? You know, how did this start? Or did it start at all? Maybe it was always there. You know, so so like I said, you you see this, and there must be some, at least in my mind, my thinking, there must be some supreme being that that uh, either got this started or is guiding it. You know, where did the laws of physics come from? So, uh, why why do we have such laws? And um, you know, somebody must have. Uh, 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 of establish such order and everything. I, I find it just difficult that the laws of physics appeared randomly, you know. Uh, anyway, so. David, you I wanted to. Touching on a very, sorry, Andy. I think you're touching on a very important point there, Giovanni, is that where do these laws of physics come from? I mean, the fine tuning, as we well know, if you change the 55th decimal place and you monkey with yeah. that, we wouldn't be here. The same for the forces operative in the atom, the weak nuclear force and the strong nuclear force. So I think you and I are on the same camp that we see um, evidence for design screaming out at us. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, David is right. You know, just any any little change, and we, we uh, really small change in the way things are would make it impossible for human beings to exist. We would have never existed. And um, so, uh, yeah, no, I don't don't find it, uh, uh, I don't find it a problem. I don't find it uh, a conflict with my work. Uh, And in fact, just just the opposite. I uh, often thank God for the, you know, for what he gave me for my mind. And uh, I was able to, work as long as I can and, and still keep going, you know, so. So Giovanni, let's think about uh, the recent infrared observations that have come through with mm-hmm. the James Webb Space Telescope. You did reference right. earlier. How do you think a telescope like that helps us to answer some of these grand questions around cosmology and astronomy? Okay, yeah. Two, uh my answer to that is two very interesting things. Uh, first of all, uh, the James Webb Space Telescope, I'll call it JWST, just to shorten it. Um, one of the, there's two things, two very important things it's going to do related to your question. One of them is to find out where the first stars and the first galaxies came from. Um. Where did the universe come from? Um. And, um, like I said, because it's in infrared radiation, it can penetrate to the first galaxies and the first stars. We, you know, it can go that far. 
It's the first telescope that can do that. The Spitzer Space Telescope went very deep. Um, and I was on one of the uh, papers that found the, the furthest galaxy. You know, back, look, when I say furthest galaxy, that means we're looking back in time due to the uh, transit time of light. And um, so we found a galaxy that was formed galaxy already 400 million years after the Big Bang. Four, oh, that, that's short. And we, theoreticians thought it would take at least a billion years to form the first galaxy. And here we found one formed at 400 years. Now Webb has even gone back further now to around 300 million years uh, back in time. And so, so that's one thing. We're really, how, do, how can we say, we, we're probing into God's space with our, with our finger or something, right? Wow. Yeah, you know we're beginning to uh, wow to uh, to see how the universe formed, and wow. I, I hope we can um, uh, I hope we can do that. We will, we will probably won't see the first stars, but I I think we'll see the first galaxy. Hopefully, we'll see some of the first galaxies that form. And the whole question is how did how did all this happen? How did we end up with beautiful objects like the Milky Way or the Andromeda Nebula? Uh, you know, how did they form? You know, what happened? And uh, so uh, we're beginning to see that. But it, the other interesting thing is the more we deep, we dig deep into this and try to understand it, the more questions appear. Uh -huh. This goes on and on. It just shows the, the, infinite, the, uh, uh, the infant problem that we're dealing with. But anyway, so that's one thing. I, I hope James Webb will lead to understanding how the universe formed. Wow. And, and that, that's, that's an important question, I think, um, both physically and, uh, and uh, theoretically. And, yes. and, um, and also uh, from a religious uh, sta standpoint. Yes. Uh, Giovanni, okay. would, you say, would you say that uh, there's a beautiful harmony between um, the book of Genesis, in the beginning, God creates the universe and there was light, which is the, not the sun, but there was light. The radiation yeah. dominated epoch. Would you say you find the harmony or the accord between the description of God creating the universe and what James Webb and Spitzer has revealed in beautiful harmony? What are oh, your yeah, thoughts? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I've, I've spent a lot of time trying to relate what happened in genesis to actual you know thing but it's it's um it's 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 quite difficult to do and uh but but i i think i i find it in complete harmony i i find no no problem at all with that uh, uh, that that creation uh, and, uh, no. and what's also very interesting is that i mean it's incredible the author of genesis could never have just guessed humanly that there would be light before the first stars and galaxies. Yes, yeah, but yeah. If we, our understanding of the Big Bang, the creation event, is that the universe initially is flooded with electromagnetic radiation. Oh, only. Yes, yes. That's astonishing. Yes, yeah. Yeah, the question is, where did that energy come from, you know? Yes. Where, where did all that energy that formed the universe? It was all energy in the beginning, when it began. Yes. Um, you know, now there is pro it could be that it always it always 
was there and always existed. You know, that's, a, that's the, the so-called solid state model. Uh, uh, not, not solid, excuse me, uh, steady state. Steady state. Yeah. yeah. The steady state model that says the universe was always there. And um, so, um, yeah, no, I find, yeah. And uh, in the beginning, it was all energy. But the question is, yeah. where did that energy come from? Yes. And, um, uh, and then that energy turned into matter. Yeah. And because Einstein says energy and matter are equivalent. And so eventually that happened. But as David said, in the beginning, it was all radiation. As Yeah. There's no conflict with, with the Genesis sequence and everything. You just have to interpret it in the, in the, in the proper way. Um, that's key. Yeah. David, I remember as a young teenager sitting in an auditorium when you were still using slides, and you gave, <laughs> us, you gave us a presentation called From Psalm 19, The Heavens Declare the Glory of God. Yeah. 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 And I wonder, I wonder, Giovanni, what what's your thoughts as you hear that phrase? Yeah, no, I I uh, I, I fully agree with the, with the phrase. And like I I said earlier, you just look at the universe, look at the the beauty, the wonder, the um, as we said, just one little change. If the charge of the electron was just a little different, uh -huh. we wouldn't be here, right? I mean, so. Uh, uh, why is that? You know, it just it just can't it just appear uh, randomly. I, I find that very difficult to believe. And so, and so, he, and and the beauty. Look at that picture behind David. I mean, you know, that, that's spectacular. Uh, and uh, so you you can't amaze. And let me say, there's another thing also that I wanted to bring up was another reason is not only the structure and the origin of the universe where it came from uh, uh, but also uh the um the uh, uh, jwst will, will go at another problem uh that we're trying to solve it is looking for life in the universe and evidence for life in the universe hmm. as i said because infrared radiation can um can detect the molecules that are critical for proving that their life exists. James Webb is going to make a deep insight into, uh, I think, whether we, we can find life in uh, in the universe or not. And so looking forward to that. And of course, whether it exists or not has got very uh, theological uh, great consequences. Uh, and, and again, whether we find it or don't find it, it opens up many uh um theological questions uh, uh but um anyway it, and even the mere fact that that life exists as we yes. know it is yes. is, uh, is another proof uh, to my, in my mind my mind yeah it's another miracle in its own right isn't it giovanni i mean according against all odds just the charge of the electron alone according to against all odds there is a Giovanni Fazio, there is an Andy, there is a David, against all odds. That alone, which as you know, led to the anthropic cosmological argument, is that we are here. We should not be unaccountable. Yeah. All yeah. the laws of physics, we shouldn't be here. Do you agree? Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, that's right. And I, I find it difficult that this just appeared randomly. Um, uh, 
I also, you know, the, when you look at the arguments, we think that every star has planets around it. Probably every star has planets around it. And maybe 10 or 20% of them have Earth-like planets around them. And so you consider there's 200 billion stars in our galaxy, Milky Way galaxy that you see behind David there, and uh, 200 billion galaxies in the universe. So your immediate uh, conclusion is, well, gee, life must be very, very abundant. Mm. But, but there's a so-called Fermi, Fermi paradox that, where the hell is it, you know? <laughs> that is right. We, they've been around much, much longer than we have. Uh, we're, we're actually uh, new kids on the block in, uh, in the universe, right? Uh, so um, we, we should see it all around us. We should, in principle, well, we don't. We don't. No. no. I mean, we, I've, always, I've always said in my books, Giovanni, that I wouldn't be surprised if life in very primitive forms exists elsewhere, but whether self-aware, self-conscious human beings like you and I, who can actually, as you said earlier, understand cosmology and observe the universe, whether they exist or not, I, I wouldn't be surprised in a sense if it's Imago Day. In other words, God creates us in his image, and we are unique. And we are unique in many ways, including to understand the history of the cosmos yeah. back yeah. at the most distant galaxies and the beginnings of the universe. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. I, um, I at first went along with this argument that there, there should be life everywhere in the universe, and um, <laughs> but now I'm I'm beginning to um, uh, I'm beginning to um, believe that we may be alone. Yes. Uh, wow, uh, that's astonishing. Yeah, I. Uh, I haven't come around to a hundred percent, but I'm about ninety percent there. I think um, there's too many. I, I just find out too many. What really, <laughs> um, I, I in the past I've sat down, I've formed groups of scientists and theologians uh, to discuss uh, what what we did is um, we had the theologians tell us what they're working on. And we told the theologians what's going on in science, and that I found those really enjoyable and, and exciting uh, uh, and, and uh, episodes. And I still stay in contact with theologians, and we exchange ideas. <coughs> but one of the questions that I continue I ask them, I, be, I believe in evolution. I'm a strong believer in, in evolution. But my question is, when did the soul, or when did the intellect, yes, uh, um, consciousness appear in in the evolution cycle? Mm -hmm. You know, when w did it all of a sudden appear in in evolution, um, or just how did that ha how did how did that evolve? How did how did uh, consciousness? Uh, Free will evolved in, in in evolution, and that, that that's a, that's a question that really bothers me, and I have received no answer yet. Except there is one interesting book um, on the, called the Divine Milieu uh, by a Jesuit, uh, Theodore de Chardin, Chardin, 
and he has he has proposed that um, consciousness or uh, free will is is in every living thing, but only in different degrees, which I I find is a fascinating concept, uh, and that would solve my problem. And um, but um, anyway, so that that's that's something that really bothers me, <laughs> and I still try to get get some discussion on. But you know, Jim, I mean, it's so interesting. Sorry, Andy, it's so interesting because maybe the spirit, maybe the spirit didn't involve. It, maybe God breathes into us at some time. Maybe a hundred thousand years ago, maybe God breathes into us his spirit, as Genesis says, and we become a living soul. Maybe that, you know, once we agree that the universe is created, in other words, that there's a great designer behind it all, it's part of his master plan, is it not, Jim Barney, to institute within us a free will and the spirit. I mean, when we die, our spirit does not die. So I think that that could be a very harmonious accord with um, God creating the universe and using the mechanisms, whichever mechanisms he does use, and then God creating the marvel of Giovanni Fazio. Yeah. Well, there's a lot to learn yet. <laughs> <laughs> Giovanni, what I'm impressed by is that at 90, you're still asking, you're still seeking, yes. you're still looking to the Lord for deep revelation, not just through telescopes, but spiritually. Yeah. That doesn't seem to be something that I see all astronomers doing. In fact, many oh, no. of them are, are often blinded spiritually. Your thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. No, like I said before, most of the people I, I work with, and in fact, it's... it's uh, uh, you, you don't bring up religion at the observatory. You, know I mean? you don't bring <laughs> religious speakers at the observatory, you know. And uh, uh, so, uh, but no, in 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 my life, um, too many things happened in my life that um, that without God's hand would have would have never occurred. I mean, I came from nothing. My parents had no high school education. Even they were. My father was an Italian immigrant. My mother's family came from Italy. There were no books in our house when I was growing up. We had a Funk and Wagnall dictionary, a small dictionary, I mean a small encyclopedia. But there was no there were no books in my house when I was growing up. And um so how 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 in the world did I ever end up in this position, you know, where I am right now? The degree from MIT and working at uh at Harvard and the Smithsonian, so you know, you know it's um, it's got to be the hand of God guiding me all the way, and I and I acknowledge that, and I I thank thank God often for 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 giving me all the gifts that I have. Wonderful. Something that David and I have spoken about before, Professor Fazio, is Christmas is upon us. Uh, our thoughts turn towards the star of Bethlehem, the, the Christmas yeah. star. As an astronomer, do you have any perspective on what that star is or could have been? Oh, I'm glad you brought that up. Boy, do I. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I've looked into that quite a bit. That one really is another one that fascinates me. I've gone back into the Bible in several places and tried to uh, make connections with astronomy. Um, um, but that one really fascinates me. Um, uh, you know, the idea of it being a comet has approached up, a supernova exploding. Um, there's a, a book, I forget it. The star is called the Star of Bethlehem. It's by a professor whose name I unfortunately I forget right now. A professor at the University of New Jersey, and um, he he has the best explanation that I've seen. And he says basically, looky, uh, the three kings were um, um, were astrologers. They were basically they they were astrologers, so they looked at the stars. They knew the stars and everything. And you turn it turns out that in astrology, um, there were if I remember right, I haven't gone back to this in, recently, but um, something about if there's a certain conjunction of stars, uh, that means that uh, a king is a king is being born or something like this, and so. They followed this star. It wasn't a, a particular star, but a conjunction of a planet. Not, not a star. A, a, I'm sorry, a conjunction of planets. Conjunction of planets. Yeah, sorry, I, I missed. I meant a conjunction of planets. Yeah, that there, if a certain conjunction of planets occurred <coughs> uh, in. Um, that there would there was there'd be some unusual occurrence going to happen, you know, and they were really out after that that conjunction occurred, and they were out after uh, to seek the origin, you know. I mean, what that event was, huh. and um, and I, I find that you know quite appealing. It's a natural thing they would they would be doing. It wasn't something, and uh, you know, and that's that's what they traced. Um, um, so, um, and they make a, uh, they show there was such a conjunction, uh, you know, at the time of Christ. Um, and, uh, let's see what, there was another thing. Uh, oh, then it, it was in the, the, uh, I think I got this right, but don't, don't quote me on it. Um, that the conjunction was in Aquarius. Um, and it's got a special meaning and, uh. I think I got the right constellation, but anyway, and it occurred in that, and that that uh, that constellation was connected with the uh, uh, with the with the concept that it was going to be a uh, a savior or uh, uh, you know being born and everything. So, so uh, I find so that's one of the best explanations I've found. Brilliant. I think that what's so interesting, Giovanni, is that. Uh, Whatever the star of Bethlehem turns out to be, the lineup of the planets is certainly one explanation. But I think the, the beautiful thing is that at this time of, as Andy says, Christmas approaching, it reminds me of the first chapter in John. In the beginning was the Word, and yeah. the Word was made flesh and tabernacled amongst us. That's really incredible that the Creator should become, should transcend time and space and become imminent, that we can no. touch him and behold his mm -hmm. glory. Yeah. That to me is the greatest, of course, of miracles. 
a oh, fox yeah. is just the star of Bethlehem. That's an incredible, incredible event. Yes, incredible event. Yeah, absolutely. Professor yeah. Fazio, as we come towards the end of a discussion that I know could go on for <laughs> weeks, if not years, um, one of the things that David and I wanted to ask you was for any young physicist or astronomer watching this interview, what advice would you have for them? Yeah. Um, what I tell graduate students when they walk into my office for the first time is I said, you know, when you when you leave here and you uh, graduate, I said, and get a job, find a job that you enjoy, that you, you want to go to work on Monday morning. Mm. Because if you don't, life is hell. Mm. Life is then hell. Yeah. If you don't love your work, life is hell. So I, I think that's quite important. And uh, and, and also, you, you really, yeah, so you got to find a field and find a, an area that um, that um, that you really enjoy and, and love and, and love doing. Uh, and I think that that keeps the motive. That keeps me going because I mean I, you know, I tell people I love to go to work on Monday, and they think I'm crazy. You know, <laughs> Giovanni, I'm very curious to ask you. I mean, in South Africa, anyway, many people reach the age of sixty-five, as Andy knows, and they sort of retire. They yeah. stop thinking. They go into aged-old homes, old age homes, and. They perish within by the age of 70 or 72 or so on. They're gone. Here you are a marvel at 90 and you're so astute. What's your secret? Is your secret just to remain passionately in love with the cosmos? What keeps you driving to get out of bed in the morning? Well, it is, yeah, so it, it is. I, I just find it fascinating. And I think it's a gift, like I said before, I think it was a gift of God that that my mind is still functioning, you know, and that I'm. I'm very healthy, and um, um, my mind is still going. I've had no decreases. I forget names sometimes. If I get your names, excuse me, but <laughs> but um, um, no, uh, yeah, no. I uh, I find that, and the way I look at it, I don't. I don't object to people retiring. Like you know, in, in David's case, he, he had to retire. It was a requirement. In our case, we have no such such rule here but even but look at david david even his mind keeps going he's as active as ever uh right now in fact, in fact i think he's more active than he was when he was teaching and um um and so i i don't hold it against people they, they're in jobs that they want to stop and do nothing but i i could not i i just cannot sit on the beach and watch the waves come in I'm, I, I I enjoy it. I enjoy doing it, but uh, uh, I I I feel I have to. God gave me these gifts, and I have to use them the best I can to the my best ability uh. to lead. And uh, th that's that's my motto. I said, you know, um, uh, on my tombstone you can write. Uh, that I did my very best. I gave it all that I had, and I did it all for the honor and glory of God. And uh, that's uh, that's that's wow. what keeps me going. 
Well, that's quite what an extraordinary thought, Andy. He's done it all for the glory of God over all these 90 years. And one of the greatest pioneers uh, I've ever had the privilege of working with and still work with, uh, Giovanni. It's just, uh, it's just goes to show you that the human intellect, if used correctly, is a source not only of incredible knowledge and a well of truth, but Giovanni also, it reminds me so much of the marvel and the wonder of simplicity of just looking at one galaxy or just looking at one star and then reflecting back on your life as you do, as Andy does, as I do, and to see God's leading. You know, I'll never forget, Giovanni, just before we started collaborating, God gave me a verse in Isaiah, I will give you the treasures of darkness. And that's when, you know, I started out my career in cosmic dust, not knowing where it would take me. You didn't know where the Spitzer Space Telescope would take you, but there's that enthusiasm, and it reminds me of the word enthusiasm derived from the root entheos, meaning in God. And I think that's just where you're at. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I fully agree, Dave. You said it beautifully. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, I think on that note, reluctantly, I'm going to bring this conversation to a close. Professor David Block, Director of Reasons to Believe Africa, and our guest today on our very first podcast, Professor Giovanni Fazio. Thank you both for joining me today. God bless you. Thank you very much, Andy, for this Thank opportunity. You. I really enjoyed uh, talking with you and David. It was a lot of fun, actually. <laughs> Thank you both so much. And it's just as always, Giovanni, it's a, it's a singular joy and honor to have you on our first official podcast of Reasons to Believe yeah. Africa. Thank, thank you so much, David. You've been very good to me, and I really, really appreciate it. Tell Liz and the boys hello for me, and I miss seeing them and everything, and you too. Oh, we'll meet again soon. Yeah, okay. Take Farewell. care. Bye-bye.